0: You know, when we look at the statistics of last year, we have a lot to be thankful for. We have, I guess, the highest contribution that's ever been a part of the life of this congregation in a year. We have the highest one-time gift that's ever been given. I guess our attendance numbers are among the highest that, that they have ever been. As you noticed in the bulletin, the last bulletin, the statistics that were given you may have noticed, though, a, a particular statistic, and, I, and I'm not saying this to throw water on anything and, and to dampen a fire or spirit. I'm saying this because I'm asking you tonight, will you be very fervent in prayer uh, with me in the next few weeks and even the months to come? If you'll notice, there was one statistic that took a real dive down this past year, and that is our baptisms right here in the life of this congregation. Our baptisms and our mission work continued about the same. There's always room for improvement. Uh, But our baptisms here at home, one soul is worth the whole world. So if you are one of the 19, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But yet it's been years and years and years since we've only had 19 baptisms at home. Uh, I remember in 2001 we had 52 baptisms in one year. Uh, That was when we were about half this size and the town around us was about half this size and yet we had less than half of those baptisms. I don't believe that all of ministry ought to be driven by numbers. I really don't. But when we look and say, how are we doing? What is it we need to place more emphasis upon? What is it maybe that we've kind of taken our eyes off the mark? The numbers help us evaluate that. And, And I hope that you'll evaluate your life. I hope you evaluate the way you approach others. I hope you evaluate because some of us apparently have done something different. I promise you, I'm evaluating what I'm doing. And I'm evaluating of how it needs to be done differently. And and I ask you, let's evaluate our life. Have, Have we been offering the invitations that we normally did in the past? Have we been following up with visitors? Have we been going out of our way to speak a good word for Jesus Christ. What was different in 2008 from the previous years? And we know, just as Paul said, we can water, we can plant the seeds, we can water, but it's God that gives the increase. And let's just make sure that in 2009, if the Lord wills time, that we're all doing our part, that we're doing everything that God gives us the opportunity to do. And, And then we'll let God take care of the rest, but let's be fervent about that. Let's be prayerful about it and, uh, and, and, and very uh, serious in our self-evaluation of, of what we can do and what needs to be different in our life. Just think, in 2009, what is it that you can do that will make a difference in someone's eternity? What can you do in a year that will make a difference in somebody's eternity? What a beautiful Beautiful thought uh, let 's do what we can do. you ever thought about professional athletes? Just that term tells us they are the best in the world at what they do. But yet, even though they are professionals, we see them year around practice, train, work out listen to coaching, watch films. And that leaves me wondering, if you're the best in the world at what you do, why do you continue to work at it? Could it be that you could be the best in the world at what you do and if you ever cease to concentrate upon it and work at it, would you become less effective? And of course, surely all of us know that the answer to that is simply yes. Most definitely. I like the line by Yale Larry. He played for Detroit in the 50s. And he was really a a pretty small guy, only about 5'11", 185. And he played safety. It wasn't called that in those days, but that's what he played. And for that time era... He had 50 interceptions, which was extremely high for that time era. During his time, he was chosen to the Pro Bowl nine times. He also was a kickoff receiver and had tremendous success there. But not only that, he also was a punter. And even in recent years, there have been experts that have said... He was the greatest punter to ever play the game. In 503 attempts, he averaged 44 yards a punt. When asked to write an article about how to punt, he wrote a very detailed article, exact down to how he would touch his ring fingers together as he was waiting for the ball to be hiked. Before he lays out that detailed article, this is the last line before he goes through step one, step two, and step three in this article. And this is the line that introduces the step one, step two, and step three. The persons who will kick best, though, will be the ones who practices the longest. Isn't that interesting? A professional a professional saying, let me tell you, even in the pros, who's going to be the best? It's going to be the ones that continue to work at it day after day after day. Here we are at the end of the year. 52 Sundays have come and in just a few hours will have gone in 2008. What should be said tonight as we give a final address to 2008... I think about the Hebrew writer as he takes the great hall of faith. They weren't athletes. They were godly people that believed that living a godly life was worth every effort, every energy, every ounce of their being. And the Hebrew writer, beginning in the 11th chapter, gives a great definition of faith in 1 and 2. And then he begins speaking about Abel, who worshipped by faith. And then he speaks about Enoch, who walked with God. And then he speaks about Noah, even though he'd never seen a flood before. God asked him to do a tremendous thing. And even though he was the only righteous family left, he obeyed God. Abraham was asked to move, leave his land. Where do you want me to go, God? I'm not telling you. Just leave, and I'll tell you as you're on your way. And by faith, he left his family. He left his home. He left riches behind. And he and his immediate family, they traveled where God asked them to go. And Sarah, by faith, she gave birth to a child when she was far beyond her her childbearing years. And then when God asked him to offer Isaac upon that altar, he proved his faith as he tied him up, laid him on that altar, and lifted a knife over him as God stopped his hand. We read down a little further about Moses. Moses. It was by faith that he chose to reproach and to suffer with God rather than to have the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt. We have all of this great hall of faith. And now if you have your Bible open, I'd like for you to see what is that transition going to be as we come out of that hall of faith and we go into the 12th chapter. Watch that transition? In other words, all of those things that have been said about these great individuals of faith in the 11th chapter, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you tonight? I believe that maybe. If the Hebrew writer was standing tonight to say, there's one last final thing I want to say to you in 2008, I just believe that verse 1 and 2 might very well be his text of what He wanted to say to us tonight. Look, if you will, at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He's talked about the hall of faith, and now we read, Therefore, He's linking what has just been said with what He's about to say. Therefore we, now it's not about them, it's about us. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, He is the author, He's the originator, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despite the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is it that I need to know tonight? Number one, I need to know that as I look to Jesus, He is the originator. He is the beginning of faith. Tonight, I want to ask you, are you saved? What better question to ask? Here we are closing out a year. If the Lord wills time, in a few days, we're looking at a new opportunity of a year in front of us and the question that that demands my response, am I saved? Jesus, He says, look into Jesus. He is the beginner. He is the originator of faith. But the question is, that is a true statement, but the question is, is it true for you? Is He the originator of your faith? Can you say, Jesus Christ is my Savior? I have surrendered my will to Him. I have done what He's asked me to do to be saved by His grace. And because of my response to His grace, I'm saved. In a few minutes, we'll sing a song of encouragement. And I want to beg you, if you're not saved, tonight's the night. There's no reason to wait. Any longer. There's no reason to think about another time. Satan is going to place all kinds of reasons in your mind why you should wait. And I beg you tonight to let tonight be the time that your faith in Jesus Christ begins by your obedience to Him. I think of the words, and if you'll turn back with me to John, the sixth chapter. The beautiful, stirring words that at the time it was probably somewhat of a disappointing and a tense moment. You see, as we go to John the 6th chapter, we see in verse 60 that there have been many disciples following, but their response to Jesus' teaching is, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in Himself that these disciples complained about this, He told them, Does this offend you? And we read in 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Can you imagine how disappointed Jesus was? Jesus knew that it was souls walking away from him. It wasn't to Jesus. I don't think that to Jesus it was a a numbers game. It wasn't, hey, think about this great multitude I can have. In other words, it wasn't arrogance on Jesus' part. It was the fact that everybody had a soul. And Jesus sees these souls coming closer to them. But then when they realize that Jesus demands our all, they're not ready to give their all. And so they turn their back and they start walking away from Jesus. Notice Jesus wouldn't change his teachings. Jesus wouldn't say, hey, wait a minute. Let me water this down a little bit. Let me soften this up a little bit. What is it you don't like? Maybe I can change something. Jesus lets them walk away. And and now he's going to make a very bold statement as he turns to the apostles to find out where are you at this point? In your faith, where are you? And notice as he turns to them in 67, Jesus said to the 12, Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Tonight, if you're not saved, I want to ask you, who are you going to go to? I want you to imagine that you have an illness and you're told that you'll probably die in the next few days. And you're lying in a hospital bed. To whom are you going to go? Are you going to call your attorney in and and ask him if he's drawn up the paperwork for you to enter into heaven? You say, that's silly. That is silly, isn't it? Are you going to call your doctor in and say, Hey, can you make a referral? When when I pass away, I would like for you to just go ahead and refer me to the great physician and just have everything arranged for me. You're not going to turn to your earthly doctor to be saved. You're going to call your mechanic in and say, Listen, I I need some kind of vehicle that can get me from here to heaven. Notice Peter's words. Peter believed in an eternal life. Peter believed in an existence after death. And Peter knew that there was no no one that they could turn to except Jesus. And tonight, if you're not saved, why? Why haven't you turned to Jesus Why haven't you turned to the one who has his arms open wide and says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why haven't you come to the one that has his arms spread wide open because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? You know there's not anywhere else you can turn. You know there's nothing else in life that's going to reward you. You know that there's nothing else in life that once you've lived your life, you'll say, I'm glad I did that instead of become a Christian. Will you turn and follow them also? Let my answer tonight be, Lord, to whom would we go? You are the one who has eternal life. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts The 26th chapter. if you're here tonight and you're not saved, there have probably been times where you have almost walked the aisle saying, I want to be baptized into Christ. There have probably been times where you thought about calling someone in the middle of the week and say, I'm ready. And something has caused you not to do it. Tonight, Tonight I'm begging you, don't end up like Agrippa. Paul's under arrest. Imagine him standing there as the prisoner. He's been called before what would be a type of royalty. Agrippa is there. Bernice is there. Festus is there. Probably a royal guard, uh, guards would be standing around also. You can imagine them in their expensive colors of scarlet and purple. You can imagine them probably setting up in important chairs. And you can imagine there's one guy that's out of place. And that one guy is a prisoner. And he's in chains. He's in common prisoner clothes. And here he stands before this group of highly intelligent individuals that had a lot of popularity and a lot of power in their day. But they're willing to listen to him give a defense of his life. And instead of just telling about his life, he tells about his ministry. Instead of just stopping with his ministry, he begins talking about Jesus. And as he comes toward the end of his talking about Jesus, he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, for you and I. He was buried and he was raised again. And Festus just can't stand to hear the talk of Christianity and especially of a resurrection. And so he accuses Paul of being mad Paul's answer is, I'm not mad. In other words, I'm not crazy. And then he looks to Agrippa and he says in 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And Paul goes ahead and answers the question for Agrippa. He says, I know that you believe. Because if you'll notice, at the end of 26, the previous verse, he said, since this thing was not done in a corner... The birth of Jesus Christ is part of the thing he's referring to. It wasn't done in some corner somewhere and no one ever knew about it. The angels announced it. The star led the wise men from the east all the way over. And Jesus' ministry, it wasn't done in a corner. His words were so powerful, people would come from long distance to hear him. His miracles were so great that word would spread all around. His death. It wasn't done in a corner where no one knew about it. The earth shook and the rocks broke. It was dark at midday. and, And the temple, the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom. And people that had died had been resurrected and walked the streets of Jerusalem. It wasn't done in a corner. And His resurrection, He stood before many individuals multiple times. And one time He stood before more than 500 in one given audience. You see what Paul is saying to Agrippa. This thing wasn't done in a corner. You can't deny that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the prophecy and that He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Do you know, Agrippa could not say, I disagree. He knew who Jesus was. And he makes this statement in 28. Agrippa said to Paul you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Some of the saddest words that we'll read in the Bible. Agrippa, what's going to be your response to Jesus? You almost persuade me. Be a Christian. A Hebrew writer. He would say, Lift up your eyes. Look to Jesus. Allow Him to be the beginning of your faith. But I'd like for you to notice a second thing tonight. He not only said, Allow Him to be the beginning, the originator of your faith, but He also said, Allow Him to be the finisher are the perfecter of your faith. I ask you a second question tonight. If you've been baptized into Christ, is there ever a time in the past that you've been closer to God than what you are right now? And if there is, we have to ask the question, why? Why? Because the truth is, by the design of Christianity, we're supposed to be growing closer and closer and closer to God all the time. And so if there's a time in the past that I've been closer, but now I'm not as close, what's happened? Why is it that my faith is dwindling instead of increasing? Why is my faith growing weaker instead of stronger? Why is my faith becoming more immature instead of maturing more? It's a question that I really need to give consideration. Is there something in my life that is causing me not to mature the way God wants me to mature? I think of the story of Enoch. If you have your Bible open, just flip back to the 11th chapter and you see there in verse 5 and 6, by faith Enoch, he was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God And we say, well, why do you think God took him? You know, the Bible never really tells us why God took him. We know that he was a man that walked with God. We know that he's a man that pleased God. And then we say, well, what is it to walk with God or to please God? And we have this explanation in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So it's implied here... That Enoch was a man who definitely walked with God. He pleased God by believing that God is and that he diligently, that means a high priority with great effort, he diligently sought God in his life. Do you realize the longer you and I live for God, the more we ought to have invested on the other side? The more mature, the more God-like, The greater our reasons even ought to be that we want to go home. Do you reflect God more now in your life? Do people see God living in you more now than they did in 2007? Do you know more about God now than you did in 2007? Are your responses more spiritual now than in 2007? Is your heart at home? The home of the soul? Is your desire to go home? Are you growing closer to God each year of your life. It's wonderful to start the Christian life, but we're supposed to be more and more complete each year, more and more like our Savior. Why? According to verse 1, there's a cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. I don't claim to understand what that phrase means. A lot of different scholars think it means some various things, but it's interesting as we come out of the 11th chapter, we have these great individuals that were willing to give their life in great events and and testing of their faith to be mentioned in the great hall of faith. And then he says, this cloud of witnesses surround us. In other words, it's that reminder that you and I need to back up for just a moment and see the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that when we're part of the Christian faith, we're part of something that is greater than us individually. It's kind of like being a team with people that have gone on before us and the baton is being passed down and passed down. Or maybe we could say it's like you and I being in the middle of a stadium and right now we're alive, we're in the Christian faith, we have our eyes set upon the Lord and we're fighting Satan, but there are those in the stands that they've done their part They've lived it and they believed it enough that they lived it and they died. They died living the Christian faith. And that cloud of witnesses is gathered around us saying, it's worth it. Don't give up. The times when you feel like you're the only one, can you in your mind's eye look up in the stadium and can you see Noah saying, it's all right if you're the only one. At the time, it feels like God is just asking too much. Can you imagine looking up in the stadium and seeing Abraham with a lifted knife over his son and saying, I understand how you feel, but trust God. Can you imagine a time when the world just looks like it would be so much fun and you look up in the stadium and you see Moses say, don't be deceived. Satan is trying to trick you. There's a cloud of witnesses and the word witness in its root form in the Greek is the same word we get martyr. In other words they believed in a cause that they were willing to give their life for. And we have a cloud of witnesses that says it's worth it to live and to die for the cause of which you're invited. What's that cause? Look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. According to verse 1, we have to lay aside every weight. It's an endurance race. Some things may not even be sin in and of themselves, but they may cause us to stumble in the Christian walk. What is it that if you look back honestly in 2008, if you took some of those things out of your life, you would grow closer to God? For some of us, we could probably say, if I watched a little bit less TV, if I surfed the web a little bit less often. Maybe some of us, if we just said, if if I just had a little bit more discipline to, to study and, and learn the will of God better, what is the weight that we need to say? I can't run a marathon carrying 30 pounds. I need to take this weight and I need to set it down. Because I want to begin this race and I want to finish this race. We've got to lay aside those weights, but we have to lay aside, he says, every sin that so easily ensnares us. We can't play with sin. Once we start playing with sin, it easily ensnares us. It's a trap that if we say, I want to pick it up, we're saying, I want to be trapped. the Hebrew writer says, lay aside the weight. Lay aside. The sin. Put your eyes on the Lord. And if you haven't begun, why not repent of sins? Why not confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Why not be baptized into Christ tonight? Why not come out of that water with your eyes set upon Jesus and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm giving you my all. Walk with me as I walk with you. Or if you've begun that journey and sin has separated you, wouldn't tonight be a wonderful night to say, I want relief from that nagging feeling that I don't think I'm saved.